You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. So I want to talk to you about a, a, a hike that we went on. The when was it 2019? I think it was 2019. I think it was somewhere around May. We decided we were going to climb Mount Princeton mm-hmm. uh, outside of Buena Vista, Colorado, and we had been warned that we should not do that because that wasn't the right time of year. It was uh, May, and the mountain was covered in snow. The, the mountain was completely covered with snow, and we you could did, ski on it. Yeah, we did not heed that advice. <laughs> Yeah, we were we were told by, by more than everyone. one person. So we went to we were in Colorado Springs, and we were going to go to the outfitters there and say, "Hey, well, you know, what do we need? Like, do we need ice axes? Do we need snowshoes?" We bought snowshoes. Yeah. Well, they said no. They were like, "No, you don't need that." But they also didn't really have any insight because nobody climbed it. Right. During that time, <laughs> they had no intel, right? Yeah. So we said, "Do we need snowshoes?" They're like, "Uh, no, not to do, not to just hike that mountain." And we go, "Well, we're gonna do it like you know tomorrow." Ah, uh, yeah, maybe don't do that. <laughs> right? They did. Yeah, they were not encouraging. No. They did sell us the snowshoes, though. Yeah, they did. I think for fifty, I still have those in my garage. Oh, I've, I've still got, I've still got. Yeah, my- I've never used them since. <laughs> Probably good. Remember how we found that ice axe? Well, that's what I was going to tell you is, is talked about. So I had an ice axe. Uh, we had the snowshoes. We had micro spikes. Uh, we had everything we needed. We're, we're going up there and we could tell it was it was getting worse. Right. I mean, we were hitting this, you know, going up the, the road. What and, do you mean uh, it was getting worse? Well, there was more and more snow <laughs> as, we, as we ascended, as normally happens. Right. As, yeah. as, as happens. And, you know, obviously we can look up. It's just just solid white. And you're ahead of me. And I just see this glimmer of silver kind of poking out from under the snow. And I go over there and I pull out this brand new black diamond ice axe. And I already had one. So I handed that to you. And you're like, okay, I think you just kind of stuck it in your pack or whatever. And we go up a while and... Uh, we get along this ridge and we're not hiking on the trail anymore because you can't see the trail. We decide we're just going to go over this ridge and then up this ridge. We were off the trail within like a half mile. Off the trail right out of the gate because there was no trail to be seen. And so we're, <laughs> we're at this ridge and for some reason I'm taking off my gloves and going to just kind of readjust everything. And so I take off my gloves and drop one, which immediately just zips down the mountain. Oh, I uh, forgot about that. About... Uh, probably 75 yards. I mean, just, oh, it was longer than just that. Just flew down the yeah, mountain. It was just pretty Sliding far. down this mountain. I'm like, damn, you know, so we, I, I need it because we, we had yet to really begin the, yeah. <laughs> the hard part of the hike. And so I'm like, oh man. So I'm going to have to scoot down and get this glove that had just kind of rested on some. Well, it slid. So it slid so far because it was all the snow that was on the mountain had been there all winter long no yeah it was undisturbed all compact it was like ice it wasn't really it wasn't much snow it's not like when you go skiing and you step off the 
you know, a ski path and it's just you're hip deep in snow right. in powder because it wasn't powder. It had been there and just kind of sunk frozen down. and refrozen. Yeah. So your your glove just slid right on top, just <laughs> yeah, straight right. down and got right, caught yeah. by a tree. Yeah, and kind of got stuck in a little tree, you know, sapling or whatever it was. And so I <laughs> tell you, I'm gonna slide down, I'm gonna use my ice axe. And I'm going to slide down on my butt and and kind of control my descent with my ice axe. And you were like, "Oh, this this ought to be good." So you take out your phone, and you're gonna you're gonna film me sliding down and, and arresting yeah. my my uh, my speed with this ice axe. And so I sit down and immediately start following this this glove. I mean, I start zipping down the mountain just as fast as this glove went down the mountain. And I hear you behind me going, hey, wait a minute, wait, stop. What? I've got to film you. And I'm like, I'm not trying. I cannot control this to sit. And I go zipping down the mountain. I'm like, oh, crap, this is for real. And I'm trying to turn around and, and do everything I had, you know, remembered from training on how to self-arrest, you know, turn over on your stomach, lift your ankles up, dig the ice axe in. And before I could do that, I'm hit, I hit this tree that slows me down and kind of spins me. <laughs> and I, I keep going. And I finally am able to stop myself near where the glove was and then have to hike back up this 45 degree angled solid snow and just wore myself out. And you were, <laughs> I think you were laughing at me. But the the scary part about that uh, that summit on on Princeton in in the saw the slow is nobody nobody was there. Yeah, so that, where you fell, what, there was if you had not been caught by the tree or not had an ice axe, you would have slid two thousand feet. Oh, it would I would have kept going. Yeah, it, you would have gone all the way down it, the mountain. It it, it would have been it was pretty bad. And I remember us going, we go up the face of Princeton and just kind of making our own tracks up, up the side. And it was pretty steep. I mean, we, we weren't following the normal sort of traversing back and forth that a trail would, would take you. We we're just going straight up. And we, we drop our packs at the ridge and you know, to lighten up and go, go to the summit. And while we're up there, it just starts snowstorm. Like the very reason why somebody tells us not to go do yes. this in May is it becomes the afternoon. So, yeah, we were fully exposed. We're, fully exposed. You know, thousands of feet above the tree line. There's solid snow in the afternoon. A storm, of course, comes on the in. ridge. So there's no cover either side. <laughs> so we're coming back down. And all of a sudden it hit me. All the snow has now covered our tracks, you know, that we took coming up the, the mountain, which wouldn't be a big deal because we can we can go back down. But it also covered up the tracks that let us know where we drop our pack yeah. and covered up our packs. Yes. <laughs> and so we're going back and forth in a snowstorm looking for our packs, not knowing if we've already passed them or if they're ahead of us. We have no, no clue where these things are. Finally find them and come back. And I remember this, this found ice axe that we just happened to stumble on. Saved you two or three times. Several times, yeah. yeah. I it, mean, I just shudder to think, had you not, if you didn't have that, had we not found that. Well, it was pretty stupid of us to yeah. probably be there at all. It was, a, um, I think in terms of decisions, that was a bad one. Probably, probably not. Out, a, but certainly not prioritizing safety. No, um, no. 
The pictures look really cool. Uh, the pictures are good. It was fun. It was a good experience, I guess. Yeah. In hindsight, it was that kind of uh, what's type two fun. Type one fun is fun that you have while you're having it and you remember it and it was fun. Type two fun is not fun while you're doing it. Really but fun to talk fun about. to reflect upon. Mm-hmm. And that's that yeah. was that was that was that, that was for it. sure. That was that for sure. Speaking of our own mountain climbing adventures, today we're talking to Shiley Bassnet. Shiley is the leader of the Seven Summits Women Team, a group of 10 Nepali women that became the first female team to scale the highest mountain in each continent, starting with Mount Everest. Now she leads programs to train young survivors of sex trafficking to become trekking guides themselves. I hope you learned something about decision making from our conversation with Shiley. I know I certainly did. I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. That's the um, the coolest interpretation of that painting that I, or that art piece that I've seen or heard, rather. So t- t- tell me again your interpretation of the painting. That, so we just walked past it. Mm-hmm. So you were talking about how when you went through the Kumba Ice Falls, that 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 sculpture piece of art reminded you of that. Yeah, the, their Kumbu Ice Fall is known for the aluminum ladder crossing, both right. horizontal and there are a few vertical. And there is one particular super vertical, 90 degrees and just like this big ice cliff. And there, there's this, I don't know, at least five, maybe six, seven aluminum ladders joined together. And you're on your crampons, so always the trick is to balance on each rung with those spikes on your crampon. And you're going up, tuck, 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 and then you have to again come back down. So that, yeah, that vertical ladder. <laughs> it's interesting how I think all art, when we interpret it, we we can only really draw on the experience of our own life, right? So I'm, I was sitting in front of that piece that is, it's a black ladder with a gold box on top, right? That that doesn't scream anything specific, right? As far as how you should interpret it, but. In our office, I, I asked people because obviously I, I have a lot of emotional attachment to that art piece since my grandfather made it. And everybody had something along the lines of finances. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, you know, I think it's about reaching your financial goal. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's the first interpretation I've heard that uh, related it to the Kumba Ice Falls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's what he had in mind too. I'll have to ask him. <laughs> yeah, so that was done by uh, by Joe Guy, who uh, he and he's there's a there's a piece of his in uh, at D- DFW Airport in the American Airlines lounge that he did. That's as half as big as that wall over there. So it's a uh, nice. Yeah, to you see should it check that out when you fly out tonight. Oh yeah. Yeah, you can see it. it. Yes. So my my Everest story. For you, my uh, my daughter and I went. One up her. What's I'm gonna want? Yeah, this is yeah so much better than whatever story you had. So (laughs) my Everest story was I had always thought in the back of my head. You know, I I I read document. You know, see documentaries on on Everest. I read the books. You know, read Into Thin Air with John Krakauer, and I've always had this. uh, You know, it, it seems to have a magnetism that pulls people to it, and so a lot of. Like a lot of other people, I've, I've seen a lot of that stuff and studied about it. And so my daughter and I went to Tibet several years ago and uh, decided we were going to go to uh, Everest Base Camp and did some hike up to Everest Base Camp because I had always had this illusion that with enough time, enough training, enough money, 
I could do that. I could, I could climb Everest. And so we get up there and we were camping out at the base camp and we decide we're going to take a small, you know, hike up and we're already at, I don't know, 17, two or something like that. 17,200 feet. And we, we hike up with really just this small little rise, this small little hill. And it, it just winded me. <laughs> and I sat down and I said, I'm just going to take a break. here." <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but there's no chance I'm going, I'm going beyond this point. This is, this is it for me. <laughs> Feels familiar. <laughs> yeah. Do you hear your stories like that? A lot of, a lot of times people are just kind of so impressed with, you know, what you've done. It just, I think, I mean, at the base camp of Everest, there is 50% oxygen compared to sea level. So even for me sitting here to think, like, if somebody, you know, if this room was kind of sucked, like, 50% of oxygen out of this room, how would we feel? So climbing mountains are like that for every single person. There are very few people in the world who are natural at high altitude. Which no big deal, yeah. Yeah. So that's... That's my story. That's my friend's story. That's like veteran climber stories. That's a newbie's story. Yeah. So, you know, being from Nepal, I would think that there is a lot of, uh, are there a lot of uh, people who go into hiking as a career in terms of guiding and, and those types of things? I would imagine it's huge in, uh, you know, Kathmandu and, you know, where you're, where you're from. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the short answer is not really. Okay. Uh, okay. The population of our country is kind of 30 million plus, And adventure tourism is such a small, like, niche thing that um, people working in that sector is is very small. Like Sherpa, popularly, you know, right. known as Sherpas, they are famous for being high-altitude mountain guides and all. Um, Sherpa, the word means um, an ethnic community, but if you work in the mountains as a high altitude guide over the years, you're also called a Sherpa. So it's like when you look at the scale of the population of the entire country, it's a small, very, very small number. So for a lot of people who are not from the Himalayan region, um, there are other like terrains in the country. So like mid hills, like Kathmandu, and then down south, it's flat plains sharing open border with India. Um, right. okay. We could be very distant from mountains of mountaineering. The um, I remember as we were going, as we were traveling through Tibet, just just the desolate terrain, you know. And so, you know, I, I always have this image that you know, if I were going to that area, I'd just be hiking all the time, and you know, it's all mountains. And it's you're right. There's just there's a lot that's just plains and flat. And how, how did you get into that then? If that's not a, you know, if it's as a, a small subgroup that you, that you described, how did you get into deciding you're going to go from, from that to climbing all seven summits and, you know, which, you know, an incredible feat, obviously. Uh, I have a, maybe a little funny story there. So I was born and raised in Kathmandu and um, played practically no sports growing up. So that was my, kind of, you know, sulking as a kid that I haven't been part of any teams or even, you know, individual sports because our school didn't have that, our community didn't have that. So I was always like, when I grow up, I want to I wanna test my physical, like, limits. You know, what can I do with my body? I've always been a talkative, big mouth person. I was good in my academics. So I was like, I can rule the world with my brain. That's not an issue. But... Okay. 
you can see that, uh, you know, I tell people I'm five feet tall on a good day. So I'm four feet, 11 inches. I've practically always been underweight, you know, skinny. So I was always curious, like, what can I do with this body that I have? So I was, I, I was very clear about, you know, wanting to try to do something with my body. So it could have been dancing, it could have been running, anything, gymnastics. I could, I would have like, you know, run after any opportunity that came my way. And in the year 2007, I came to know about this um, team working towards forming an expedition of Nepali women to climb Everest. And, you know, young and stupid. <laughs> I was why like, not? why not? Right. Why not? I got to try. <laughs> so that's how it started. Okay. So when you told that earlier story of going to Everest Base Camp and the whole thing, that was the training for me. Like when I went for my training, it was my first ever trek. It was the most physically demanding thing I ever did in my life. And I was terrible. <laughs> So what, what does the training look like? So when you want to climb Everest, uh, you can do whatever training is available or you're interested in. There's no standard of like, this is the training you need to do. For us, we have our Alpine Association, Nepal Mountaineering Association, and they have these like really intense mountaineering training courses. They've been running for maybe, I don't know, 50 years now. So in collaboration with, um, you know, Alpine associations in other countries like European countries and stuff. So there was this, you know, annual training and um, there were five uh, women from my team who applied for it. And uh, at the time, there were just so few women in mountaineering. So they had a reservation and we, you know, got in through that. And All of you joined together? We're a team of 10 women from the expedition. So out of those 10, five of us went for this particular training. Some had already completed it in previous years and some hadn't joined the team yet. So there are five of us who went for it. And oh my God, it was not easy. So this started as just Everest for you and then turned into all seven. Yeah, we, it started as a Nepali women's expedition to Mount Everest. And what was, what was important about it being Nepali women? So the background to that is um, this is the year 2007. And till then, we only had seven women from Nepal who had climbed Everest. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's right there. Exactly. <laughs> that's like 10 Americans have gone to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so that's why this expedition was formed, because like high time, we had more women, you know, from Nepal participating in the mountains. So um, so that's kind of how we started. And you know, there's a long story of like socioeconomic challenges. And uh, we were literally told on our faces that this is a joke. This is over ambitious, yeah. all sorts of things. So that was so much more symbolic than, you know, a symbolic of, of a cultural change, I would imagine. And it's symbolic of saying, hey, we're, this is something that's right here. And for whatever reason, we talked actually at dinner a lot about the, the unique challenges of Nepali women culturally. In, and I would imagine that that would say, you know, hey, if we can get people to, if we can get these women to climb a mountain, that's a significant moment, significant step. Yeah, it was. Um, I believe that uh, you know it was just something bigger than all of us. Yeah, it was just the time. It was just I think meant to be. We had just come out of ten years of um, armed conflict in Nepal. 
Um, we had just, at that time, we abolished monarchy. And the whole political environment at that time was of inclusiveness uh, in, you know, mostly various ways like gender inclusion. And sure. we are more than 100 ethnicities in Nepal. And so ethnic, you know, what we call caste, um, you know, that inclusion and inclusion of people from all regions of the country. So inclusion was like a big, you know, ongoing thing. And somehow our team happened to be formed around this time. So we were named no prizes for guessing. First inclusive women, <laughs> Sagarmatha expedition. Uh, Sagarmatha is the name for Everest um, in Nepali language. So it was a it was a big deal. So there was a lot of support, but um, that came a little later, maybe. And in the beginning, you're faced with a lot of apprehension and doubts. Um, at the time, it hurt, but now I understand it's just that people hadn't seen anything like this before, so they just didn't know you know, what to make of it. We're a team of 10 women from Nepal. Trying how, to how long did that training take? Um, so this training that we went for was 45 days, part of it in Kathmandu, and then um, three weeks plus in actual high mountains in Langtang Himalayas. So um, we trained, I want to say, I think in meters. So 3,800 meters is probably 12,000 feet roughly. Right. Um, that was our base for a week. And then we went higher close to Everest Base Camp Elevation. We were camped there for another week, so three plus weeks. So People don't understand how difficult it is just to sleep at 12,000 feet. That's that's hard already. You know, a lot like I've done some hiking in Colorado. Not, obviously, am I trying to compare that in any way to Everest. But you go up and come right back down. (laughs) It's hard enough up there. I can't imagine. Everything's done in one day. Yeah, you go... Man, this is really tough, but okay, you know, at the end of the day, I get to go sleep at 8,000, 7,000. I can't imagine even just sleeping at 12. I was hiking in Colorado uh, sometime last year. So, my husband Tyler and I, uh, and our dog Mia, we went for a hike. And uh, because of the pandemic, I hadn't been out and done any hiking or anything for a year or so, I guess. And I still remember in Colorado, this is, I want to say 9,000 to 10,000 feet. Like the first five minutes, I was like, I don't think I can hike for like one plus hour. I, I really thought I couldn't. When I was moving my feet, I felt like somebody was pulling my calves back. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is how elevation feels. I'd forgotten in a year. <laughs> yeah. I've talked to some people that you know, have, have hiked a good number of the tall mountains in Colorado and they'll say it doesn't get any easier. You just can get faster at it. Yeah. You get faster at it. Also in my experience is basically, um, you know, high elevation, the whole thing is lack of oxygen. Yeah. And I mean, we are oxygen creatures. We need that. We don't get oxygen. We're dead. So how does your body respond to the lack of oxygen can be very different from person to person. And also, how do you cope with that can be slightly different for people. So for instance, um, once I cross, I want to say around 5,000 meters, maybe 17,000-ish feet, um, my um, high altitude issue is actually diarrhea. And, you know, my joke is when I'm in Kathmandu or Denver and I have like, you know, upset tummy, I never think, oh, maybe I don't have enough oxygen. But (laughs) when I'm climbing mountains, 
my kind of digestive system is the first to kind of, you know, feel the stress huh. of not having enough oxygen. Whereas uh, most of my other friends don't have that. They, they're people who throw up, they're people who have headache or shortness of breath. And so the more you do it, now I, I can tell, right? I'm in 4,000 meters, I'm 5,000 meters. So I'm like, oh, I need to hydrate more or I'm, today I need to walk a lot more slowly. So I just know what to do with my body better. So over time, it's not like it's different for me. My body is still trying to make sense of this, you know, lack of oxygen, but I know what my body will respond to faster. So that's a step, did, I think. Did you take any high altitude medication like a Diamox or anything like that to oxygenate the blood or do you just get acclimated to it by being up there? Yeah, we are pretty old school. Yeah. So the leaders we had uh, were experienced mountain climbers were leading us for the Everest expedition, Dagombu Sherpa and Pembadurji Sherpa. So and Dagombu Sherpa, he's no more, but he was a mountaineering instructor. So he's trained like, you know, most of the superstar climbers right. of our generation. And he was like, uh, yeah, if you're feeling bad, aspirin, half of it. <laughs> That's yeah, it. Wow. Uh, and our our schooling was if you need to take Diamox or, you know, dexamethasone, any of those things, that means you take it and you start going down because mm. you're struggling. Um, yeah, okay. Also, our another education was if I'm taking Diamox to go up, especially when I'm climbing mountains, not trekking to the base camp. Uh, if I'm going up to the mountains, if I'm already on Dymox, and if still something goes wrong, then what is going to come to my rescue, right? So we, we've always uh, done it the natural, organic way, and there have been times when we've actually decided to turn around from a mountain, then, you know, inject or, you know, pop something and try to keep going up. We don't do that. So you did, you did this 45-day training. Did you start the ascent uh, right after that? I mean, did you guys then start the Everest expedition immediately following so the training? I went for this um, training in summer 2007 in Nepal, and uh, we climbed the next spring, 2008. So the entire preparation um, for us, it was less than a year. But it was several months of intense training. So we started with this training uh, because the training was being offered like it had been for 30 plus years at that time. So we just signed up for it and, you know, uh, went with it. And after we did that, our team was based in Kathmandu and every single day would train for anywhere between five to six hours. And oh, the, the wow. final two months before the expedition, uh, we had kind of a close camp. We stayed at my parents' place, actually. And so... All of us, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we ate a lot. We worked out a lot. Right. Uh, we asked for people money a lot because we needed funding. Right. So that was like the whole cycle. So, t so tell me about the expedition then. So you guys started that the year after. Yeah. So the climbing season for Everest is spring. That's when the mountain is more stable. So you want to think late March, uh, April, and then May, and kind of somewhere in June, the monsoon starts, and you do not want to be traveling or climbing or hiking anywhere in the country at that time, June, right. once the monsoon starts. So what you call summer here, June, July, August, maybe some of September. So the idea is to be done by the end of May. And uh, <clears throat> we left for the expedition sometime in mid-April, 
and we had some permit delays issues, so we lost uh, a couple of weeks there. Um, and you arrive at the base camp, I want to say roughly around 10 days, you walk to the base camp, so you trek to the base camp of Everest, and that itself is slow, and you've done this, you know it. So, you know, a few hours, maybe five hours, six hours every single day, you're not um, racing, you're just going slowly and slowly, and the idea is to let your body kind of get adjusted to that elevation, right? So you arrive at the base camp, and once you're at the base camp, you rest for a few days, and then you want to go to the higher slopes of Everest. You go up and down a lot, at least two or three times, and then finally you wait for the weather forecast, and you pick your best summit day, uh, when the summit is going to be super clear, there is no snow, there is no wind. And it's going to take you four days to make it to the summit from the base camp. You'll stop at like various camps on the way. There are four camps above base camp. So on the fourth morning, hopefully you'll be at the summit of Everest and it takes three more days to come back down. So the final push is four days up, three days down. And then you trek back to where you started from. How, how tall is, is the uh, fourth camp the fourth camp is roughly 8,000 meters which is i think 26,300 feet so it's the beginning of what they call death zone okay yeah it's okay like, so you're spending yeah. one night there hold on did you say death zone yeah okay that's what it's called <laughs> it's called death zone because um above 8,000 meters there are only 14 mountains in the world above that elevation. So it's a rarity to be in any, you know, earth surface above that elevation. And it just supports no life. And even though we go and climb, um, our body kind of is eating itself up. The food you eat is not going to give you enough energy to, you know, sustain life there for a prolonged period of time. So that's there. And the environment around you, there's one third oxygen compared to sea level. So the environment outside is trying to kill you. Your body inside is like eating you up. So you're just visitors with limited time. And there's somebody who said uh, in, in a documentary movie, there was a doctor, she said, I forget her name, but she said, in the death zone, if you're not dead, you're dying. Oh, man. <laughs> so, so some climbers hike with oxygen, right? So most climbers hike with oxygen. That's what I did and my team did as well. I don't have the number, but I want to say that um, I don't know that like 7,000 people have climbed Everest, roughly speaking, uh, from all over the world. I'd be surprised if there is even 70 people who've done it without oxygen. I want to say maybe the number is, I don't know, 20, 30 max. So that it's a very small number. It of, would seem virtually impossible. Yes. These are like, um, I don't know, super freaks of nature. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the, where I've, I've seen pictures online. I've read about this kind of stretch where the trail or, you know, pathway, not like it's a, you know, sidewalk, but the, the route, I guess, is more accurate, is really steep and it gets kind of crowded. There's not a lot of space and there's just apparently all these fallen hikers, dead bodies of people that didn't make it, that kind of fall off. It was, is that, did you see that? Was that something that Yes. Um, was present when you climbed? I came across two dead bodies and um, somebody passed away while I was uh, on my climb. And um, yeah, so, um, and his body was, 
retrieved from Everest few years later on his family's request. So somebody had went he, up. He passed away while you were there, while yeah. you were on the mountain. Yeah. So I just came across somebody who had just collapsed and his guide um, was trying to revive him. But by this time, he had already passed away. So um and so uh, he, the, the guide, he asked me and my guide if we could give him company until help arrived. And so we did. So we spent like one hour plus um, in the morning just waiting for help to arrive. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I could say I just saw somebody pass away. Yeah. So wow. That was, yeah. That. Was was this person descending or, or descending. still? Descending. Descending. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that that is the more dangerous part of it. Yeah, I want to say descending is more difficult for any mountain, but particularly for big ones like Everest, um, just because of the simple fact, like my psyche when I was going up was focus, determination, energy. I did not want to stop even for a second to take any break. I was like summit, 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 you know. When I was climbing back from Everest, I was like, can I take a picture here? <laughs> you know, I want to catch up to my friend and like, you know, just talk for a little bit. You're just, you know, if you've not made it, you're probably sad and, you know, depressed. If you've made it, you're like over the moon and you're like nothing else matters now. So you just you just don't have the same level of, you know, focus and concentration. Uh, you become more negligent. And obviously, you have been exhausted by this time. So that is not gravity working against you. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to fall going up. It's possible. But I would imagine you're coming down. It's easy to just not put quite as much of focus into your knees and hamstrings. I think it depends um, on how individual bodies are. For some people, going up is easier. Some people coming down is easier. So. I don't know how much of science there is in that, but purely from, I think, mental space. For me, what worked was having this super clear, um, you know, vision that success means coming back home, coming back to the base camp. So that literally became my chant, you know. And with all the preparation we did, you know, we watched movies where people had died on Everest and all of that, and still... You made it and you're coming back and there is a little bit of carelessness or negligence or just exuberance because, oh, my God, I made it. And, you know, so it's it's easy to get carried away when you're coming back down and combine that with being exhausted. It's just not a good combination. Yeah. So you need like that's why part of climbing Everest is all the physical training, but you need a very, very strong mental, you know, training of, um, you know, what is success? So I think anytime you have a goal, there's going to be things that any goal that's worth accomplishing, there's going to be things that come in and and give you very good reasons to quit or fail or, or walk away or stop trying. You're, you're almost looking for those reasons. Yeah. And there's a subconscious, <laughs> that right. little inner weakling that we all have is waiting to find that reason and tell you, ah, you know, you don't really need to do this anymore. And a lot of people will take the first one. A lot of people will take it. Um, before they've even started, right? They'll take the reason that shows itself before they even commit to step one of the goal. But I can imagine that there's few things more compelling than seeing someone with your own eyes who has attempted the goal that you're in the middle of attempting 
and seeing them them die. How do you decide to keep going? That's an interesting question. And, you know, I do agree with you, but at the same time, um, I, I want to be very, I, I'm always very careful trying to answer this question. Um, see, for me, after especially seeing people dying or dead on Everest and things like that, I am very clear that um, there has to be, I like to say there has to be a combination of mind, body and spirit when you're taking anything, especially something like climbing a mountain. A lot of times we hear, you know, it's it's in your mind and you know half the battle is in your mind. And I agree. But at the same time, I've seen people get carried away with that so much that we underestimate or overestimate what our body can do. I have literally, I myself, when I'm climbing a simple rock face, I'm not a good rock climber at all. I have a thousand issues why I can't like just do the right maneuvers and stuff. And I have literally hung on a rope and be like, nobody forced me to do this. I want to do this. Why is my body not responding to it? Like, I want to climb this. And after years and years of doing that, obviously with practice, you get better. But I came to a place where I was like, you know, your body has an intelligence of its own. And maybe my body is scared to take that step because it knows something that my mind doesn't and it's trying to protect me. And I need to be able to know when to respect that. So when to respect to your body, when to respect to nature, the mountains, and when to understand that it's just a moment of weakness and you're kind of holding on to an excuse. So that's a tricky thing. But let's say for me, going back to that scenario where I've seen some, you know, really, really unfortunate things unfold, my, I was, that made me even more determined to go back up on Everest. And I could take that decision. I actually argued with my leaders because one of my leaders was like, you're going back down immediately. And I told him that I don't care if you provide me with a you know, guide or not. I'm going to go as high as I can. If it's the summit, great. If it's oh, they, not, they were trying to stop you before summoning? Because I went up once and then... Uh, I didn't make it. There was a little accident uh, with my guide, not me. And so we decided to turn around. And as we're turning around, um, this incident happened. And so my leaders don't know why I wasn't at the summit. And so I was on radio with my leaders the next morning. And one of the leaders, and he was just trying to protect me. I have nothing against him because, you know, your climber left for the summit, didn't make it to the summit, is back at the camp. What are you going to think? You're going to think that she's not safe or healthy, something happened, right? So he's like, you, you're coming back um, immediately. And I, and obviously at that time, I didn't have this, <laughs> you know, Zen wisdom. So I was like, no, I'm going to go up. And uh, yeah, I, I was like, I'm going to go up. I don't care how high I make it, but I'm going to go as high as I can. And if that's the summit, great. And the the confidence I had at the time came from the fact that I was in my top shape. I was not exhausted. I was physically in my finest that I've ever been in this lifetime. So I was making that decision on the heels of having a super fit body and having enough resources like oxygen tanks, you know, my, my gear and everything, nothing at like my guides, summit suit was torn in an accident. And that's why we turn around 
he was not hurt or anything. What, what was torn? His summit suit, oh, like the okay. down, you know, uh, oh, okay. pants he was wearing. So, but I was fine. Right. M- my gear was intact. My health was intact. Um, so, I, and I knew that, you know, safety comes first, but I was in top shape. So there was, there was this strong determination and that's why, you know, having a strong mindset was helpful. I was not scared by anything's happening around me, seeing three dead bodies or uh, having been, you know, some height above the last camp and, oh, what if I'm going to get exhausted? You know, I'll be trying to go up like twice. That's going to be exhausting. So I didn't have any of these things because I was in top shape. But we hear the story so many times in the mountains, on Everest, uh, even for, you know, shorter treks to base camp and stuff where people just don't have the fitness or other situations. Um, they could be caught in bad bad weather and they're just, they just have strong but wrong mindset where they're like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. So I always want to be careful when I'm sharing my story. Um, there have been times I've turned around from mountains um, and I, I would... I would always choose to do, you know, the the right thing. So, I, I'm I'm ignorant on this, but he, this guy ripped his summit suit and had to turn around because he got a rip in his summit suit. Yeah, it wasn't his fault. It was just uh, it was a falling rock. What's your question? Well, my that? question is, he's I mean, I can see if I'm an off. astronaut and I rip my well, it's my suit. I would imagine he's going to get frostbite. Well, I mean, like, aren't you wearing stuff underneath? I mean, you, that would really. No, that, you don't take that risk. Because the first goal when you're on mountains is to come back alive and intact. Okay. And that's for everybody. And well, I just wouldn't think that a rip in the suit is is that traumatic. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I mean, I, clearly I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I've been pushing forward like, oh, I, I got a rip in my suit. I mean, I, oh, that's unfortunate. About? If you got a rip in your pants and you were just outside... Walking up, yeah, I would go home. Thirty degrees, I would fix that. You're in the death zone. Not wearing anything under the pants. I mean, I'm assuming there's layers. Uh, Yeah, no, it was uh, that was my call, and I'm, I'm. That's that's definitely one of the better decisions I ever took in my life. I don't regret it. Even if I had not made it back, like gotten another chance to make it to the summit, I I stand by my decision. Um, The mountain will always be there. You know, sounds like a good decision. Yeah, this man has, you know, um, his life, his family, and everything, and I got my own, and we're here to tell the story. Um, yeah. So what? What? Tell me. Take me through the process of deciding then to go from Everest. To, that was the first one to doing all seven summits. So for us, what happened was before we climbed Everest, we didn't even know how many of us would make it. And, you know, when you're a team, uh, usually even if one or one person makes it, you're successful as a team. So that's always the rule you go by and everybody comes back alive and intact. That's always the biggest goal. So we went with that. We didn't know how many of us might make it. But by the end of this expedition, all 10 women in my team made it and were probably the largest and most successful women's team like ever to be on Everest. So when we came back, we were celebrated like, you know, war heroes and whatnot. We had like ocean of people welcoming us at the airport. And uh, we're like, why stop now? We're all, you know, very young and had this amazing success. So we thought... 
It's got to be the hardest of the seven. Sorry? It's got to be the hardest of the seven, right? Yeah, yeah. It is, yeah, it's, it's, it's hardest in several ways. So we, we just were like, let's, let's keep going. And then we chose to do the seven summits. So what are, what are all seven? You have, what, Aconcagua in yeah, South so, and Chile, and Mauna Kea in Hawaii, right? Or no, no, so uh, the seven continents, highest in seven continents. So uh, we started with, obviously, Everest. Then we went to Australia. It's a small, yeah, <laughs> tiny little thing, Kosciuszko. It's like 13,000 feet or um, something. Something like that, yeah, probably even lower. Yeah, Kilimanjaro and... and- Africa, yeah. right? Uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa, yes. Then there's Mount Elbrus in Russia. It's yeah. considered the highest in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the Caucasus range between Georgia and Russia. So um, that that's Europe. And then we have South America, Aconcagua in the Andes. Uh, we have North America, Denali in Alaska. And then Antarctica has Vincent Massive. So these are the seven. In the climbing community, there is uh, another mountain called Karsten's Pyramid, which is in Indonesia, actually, uh, I think close to Bali or something, uh, which is uh, which some climbers consider to be the true mountain because the mountain in Australia is really small and everything. So there is kind of a, you know, uh, I don't know, conflict there, or debate. Wait, so where and is to that be, one? That's, that's in, um, it's Indonesia? Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's in the Oceania region. Yeah, okay. so uh, to be safe, uh, most of the climbers just climb both mountains because as a climber, you love climbing, so sure. why wouldn't why you not? do that, why right? Uh, we were a team. We didn't have all the funds. If we had fun, like, we'd, we'd love to go climb. <laughs> so someday we might, but we, we didn't pursue uh, Carson's Pyramid at the time. So I would think the one in Antarctica would be the most logistically challenging. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, after Everest, uh, logistically challenging and expensive. There are operators. I think there are five or six operators that have permission to run these expeditions there. Right. So, so what all do you do? You fly down to uh, Chile and yeah, you go fly to the southern tip of Chile, and from there. Um, so I didn't go to Antarctica because we didn't have enough funds. It costs like I want to say fifty thousand dollar a person. To climb that mountain so we didn't have enough oh, is funds. That right yeah yeah and so we didn't have enough funds so we some of us volunteered not to go and um, um that's actually another frequently asked question people ask me like was was it hard i'm like no it's one of the easiest decisions i took because we're all here for the team so yeah. um there are four team members um that went for this so you go to southern tip of chile and then you uh there's this uh, Second World War Russian aircraft called Elysium. So the operators will put you in that. You fly to Antarctica, and then you take a smaller aircraft that takes you kind of inland, closer to the mountain. So um, just those flights itself is, like, insanely expensive. And they'll provide you support for two weeks. Uh, they'll provide you guide, food, you know, tent, accommodation stuff. So it's very expensive. <laughs> imagine spending 50 grand to <laughs> yeah so it was like the funny thing about it is like imagine this is the seventh climb okay this is the right. last climb and you know three of us have given up our spots right being the good friends in the team and all right. and we paid like close to 50k for all of this and it it is a two-week expedition and my friends left i think on the 19th of december and i remember i want to say 24th of december at eight in the morning, I'm still sleeping, 
you know, in my bed because now I don't have to train. I don't have my teams. I'm just sulking. And I get a call from one of my teammates' husband. And he's like, did you get the news? And I said, no. And he said, they did it. I was like, why? We paid for two weeks worth. They've been gone for like six days or something. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> we want our money's worth. Yeah. The least yeah, they could do time. is like, you know, like have two weeks of experience on all our behalf. So I was like, my first reaction when we finished all the seven summits as a team was of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so what have been some of the more challenging decisions you've had to make in, in all of these summits, summit attempts, uh, deciding, you know, how to sequence these, these mountains. I mean, tell me, tell me about some of the difficult decisions you've had to make. The first, personally, the first decision was uh, not difficult, but big decision was just a decision to climb Everest. And um, I think there are different ways of arriving at making decisions, right? So I think what worked for me at that time was just this clarity that I want to see what my body can do. Like, that's all I had. It was I had a test, me, right? Huh? A test, a challenge. Yeah, and I was very clear, and I was actively seeking avenues. Like, I had gone for the first time to kayaking, rafting. I did bungee jumping, all of those scared like <laughs> scared and scarred me but I just had this I don't know this big appetite where no matter how scared I am I have to try to see what a human body can do that was my fascination so when this opportunity to climb Everest came up um, I did not you know I, I did not fit the bill in any way I am this petite young you know Nepali woman um, with no sports background, athletic background. I was probably not fit or whatever. I was just young and I had time to work on myself, which obviously you discover later. So just that having that clarity of what you want to do with your maybe time or life at that moment, that helped me make this decision. Um, so that was that was not hard, but it was definitely a big decision. And I, I just jumped at it. So And that has redefined my life, given me my identity, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a big one. It's one of the biggest decisions ever. Um, and then there are a lot of other, um, small and big moments, even during the first expedition itself, uh, constantly when you don't have the funds and, you know, you like our real discussion in our office would be if we don't have the money, how are we going to do this or who's going to give up their spot, you know? So um, uh, to kind of hold on uh, in the face of that, that was um, challenging. But again, the same clarity that maybe if we work hard enough, we'll get past these hurdles helped. And those kind of um, situations were helped by the bonding we had in the team a lot. So there are moments when you doubt yourself the moments when you're not sure if you'll have the funds or if you have the physical strength or if, you know, the nature will hold up. There are so many moments where you can you can lose confidence and that, you know, and, and there are people who signed up for our team and later quit. There are, you know, there are people who did that. So what helped me stick through the whole thing was uh, definitely the team bonding 
that we had. Everybody who lasted in the team was there for the same reason. And we believed in building each other up rather than, you know, thinking otherwise. So that, so that kind of, you know, happened organically where whenever I had doubts, my decisions were kind of just, uh, just, I don't know, strengthened by the team spirit. I could go on and on about this. <laughs> and the seven summits was, um, if you want honest answer, on December 31st, 2008, we had a big New Year's Eve party. And we were like, 2008 is the best year in our life because we climbed Everest. And we're like, but then today is the last day. We can say it's 2008. So what can we do to make other years special as well? So 1st January 2009, still hungover, we're like, we're going to climb seven summits. <laughs> so just, yeah, being young and stupid helped that uh, distant making. <laughs> well, it worked out, you know, it, it, it worked out. It turned out to be a good decision. Yeah. Any, any big decisions that didn't work out? Uh, many. Yeah? Many. Let's hear it. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah, a lot of uh, things... Um, we wanted to try different approaches of going about this. We wanted to, um, you know, make this bigger and grow it to its full potential. Fundraising was always a challenge and we'd put our faith on X, Y, Z and um, that won't work. You know, there was one moment where I got a text from a very influential person saying that they were going to support us with uh, roughly, let's say, 10,000 US dollars. And we're trying to cross a street and there's seven of us, right? So three of my girls are on the other side of the street and like four of us are here. And just from across the street, I showed them like 10 fingers in my hand. And like we all understood we got 10 grands and we danced on the middle of the street. And when the money actually came, it was 5K. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and those things happened a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the saying in my team now is like, I'm not going to believe, um, I'm not going to believe it until I'm in that flight. Yeah. So we don't, we, yeah, we, we, we know how to kind of manage our expectations now. Yeah. I, I would imagine that there's a lot of decisions you've got to make in the moment when you're climbing. Right. And I've never done anything nearly as significant as Everest, even close. But in any physical endeavor, you've got tons of decisions. When do I eat? When do I rest? When do I drink water? When do I keep going? When do I push a little bit harder, even though I kind of want to slow down? How conscious was your decision making in the moment when you were climbing? Not just Everest, but all of the, you know, Aconcagua has got to be challenging. Denali is very significant. I'm not super familiar with Elbrus, but that's a that's a multi-day yeah. hike as well. Um, what was it like? So, um, okay, first of all, I have not been on the seven summits, like all the seven summits. Um, uh, yeah, Aconcagua, I had to turn around. I had a I had a frost nip, and then one of my friend also had issues, so some of us turned around for like health reasons. And then two other mountains for logistic, financial reasons. Uh, I wasn't part of the climbing team, but as a team, we made it. And that was always our goal. So that's there. The, these things that you're talking about, um, I, I call them like these are the given. Like you have to drink 
at least three to possibly five liters of water every single day. Once you're above 10,000 feet, you want to avoid dairy if you have problem with mucus and stuff. Like, so there's, you know, there's a bunch of these things. You try not to run unnecessarily, you know, try, you got to be fast when you have to save your life or something, but otherwise you go slow and steady. So there are certain rules which need to be given. And my team has always been religious about it. And whenever we're preparing for a climb, then we wouldn't drink. Nobody in my team smokes. Um, you know, we'd be very clean and very trained, like well and all. And then after we make it to one summit, then we come around and we party and we, you know, get drunk, whatever. But th- there's a discipline, you know, um, and it it should be... Um, it should be, yeah, as pious as, I don't know, religion to you, but we see people because we've also been guiding people to, you know, base camps and other tricks. And we've had to kind of try all sorts of tricks, like play the good cup, bad cup, just so people would drink like three liters of water. And they seem to have the mindset that I'm going to make it to the base camp, but the action steps are missing. And with a strong mindset, they're able to make it there. But when they get there, they're miserable. They can't enjoy. They're coughing. They're sick. And they've made it so much harder for the person and for the team they're with. So, you know, I don't even probably look at these things as making decisions. It's like when I signed up to be on this trek or be on the climb, that's when I made the decision. And all these subset of things are a given. These are non-negotiables. You don't mess with these. Um, so maybe you you can say hard skill, soft skill, right? You want to be a climber, you got to be fit. You know, you, you need to know your ropes. You need to have enough resources. Yeah, those are like, th- those shouldn't be big decision making. That's probably what I'm trying to say. And after that, then there are situations when you're tested. Like I had a little frost nip on Aconcagua. Um, the Argentine guides, they were like, why, why did you turn around? You could have made it. And I, I, I probably could have made it. My friends who made it did tell me that I would have made it. But the fact is, when I came back for one whole month, this thumb that had that frost nip, every time I stood on shower and like had warm water, they'll, it'll be almost like a current electricity going from the tip of my thumb all the way like up my throat and all. And nobody else can see that, right? Uh, I look perfectly fit and fine to other people looking at, at me, but I know what's going on. And so I know that if I had spent maybe more time on that mountain that day, maybe I wouldn't have my thumb today. So that was hard decision to make because... <clears throat> We'd spent so much money, time, energy. There's this, you know, big media publicity around our climb and all. And we'd always been 100% success in all mountains before that. And here, I couldn't make it. A couple other friends had to turn around. So it was hard. We cried on the mountain. How did you, you get the frostbite on your, on your thumb? Just what happened? B- the gloves. Uh, the gloves weren't good enough. Um. Uh, last, yeah. last time you used those gloves, I'm guessing. No, they were old. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Did they have a rip in them or what? They were not. They looked perfectly fine. Um, it's just that on the inside, they were mittens. So on that, like when you look at it, they're fluffy and 
they felt warm and everything. But right from the time I started the climb around seven in the morning, I was telling my girls like, hey, my thumb is, yeah, right. isn't feeling good. And they had good advice. They were like, well, we just started climbing. So once we climb more, our body will generate heat and all. So that should work. And, forward and yeah, and then we'd be exposed to more sun as the day progresses. So those two things would help you. And right. I was like, yeah, it, it makes sense. But around two or three in the afternoon, um, one of my teammates was also not feeling great. And I had this issue. So we, we decided it was safer for us to turn around. So d- tell me about Kilimanjaro. I, I've... Uh... You know, I've looked at that. It's uh, what's it, nineteen two on Kilimanjaro? Uh, it's five thousand eight hundred fifty meters, yeah, so remember, probably around metrics, yeah. that feet. Yeah. So, is that do you have the same kind of equipment issues or same type of equipment on Kilimanjaro as you would on some of the others, or you, you, is, a, a re-outfit at each different mountain? Is I guess what I'm asking. There's slight differences in different mountains, so. Kilimanjaro is one of the easier mountains to climb. And I think <laughs> there's a lot of confusion around that uh, because we're told by uh, the guides in Tanzania that people just, you know, show up with like cigarette in their hand and like a beer can and they're like, oh, <laughs> well, there's, not, well, there's not technical climbing on that. It's mountain. not technical yeah. climbing. It's a long uphill walk. Yeah. So what I want to say is that Kilimanjaro is one of the toughest treks in the world. So if you're a trekker if you've been trekking it's one of the toughest treks in the world if you're a climber it's one of the easiest climbs in the world so there is a big difference between trekking and climbing so yeah you've climbed Everest you've climbed these other mountains you know in Alps Andes whatever then Kilimanjaro is not going to be super challenging to you there is nothing technical or there is no such exposure even, you know, weather is more, more or less stable throughout the year, actually. And um, you start from rainforest. So it was raining a lot when we started. And it's inconvenient. But coming from Nepal, where <laughs> you're bundling up, you know, and uh, worried about snow and wind. And here it's raining and you're in your shorts. Like, we're like, sure. <laughs> So we were literally, there were like, we have a picture where we're dancing on the trek, like of Kilimanjaro. So uh, the first, um, the, the first few days, uh, it just, you're gaining elevation steadily. Uh, you go slow, the same rules apply. Uh, you start in t-shirt and shorts. And as you go higher, you start more, with more layers. And the last summit push is still challenging. So you start at one in the morning and it's going to be a long walk to the summit. And the elevation now is, you know, higher than Everest Base Camp. So it's um, definitely 50% oxygen, probably even lesser. Uh, so the last stretch is is uh, is quite challenging. And I've heard this from a lot of people who've done it. So again, if you've climbed, if you're a climber climber, then that's not challenging for you. But if you're more into trekking and hiking, uh, this will this will test you. I want to go back to what you said earlier about all of these all of these things being a given. If you've made the decision to climb Everest, you've made the decision to do something significant, there are all of these other ancillary points or choices that shouldn't really be choices. I, I 
I think that it's great that for you it was. For most people, unfortunately, they're they're not planners. They don't plan things out that way. And then everything does become a decision. Now, if I don't plan in advance, then everything that happens is a decision point. Every single thing that happens is a decision point because I didn't plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why a lot of people get into trouble and, you know, you mentioned people getting to base camp and they're sick and exhausted. That person probably had a lot of decisions that they should have made before they started, but didn't. Oh yeah. And then they don't have the ability to make the right decision in the moment. You know, I, I did, um, some Ironman triathlons. A lot of people don't have a nutrition plan and a nutrition plan is probably the most significant part of Ironman preparation maybe even more so than the physical fitness because you know to use your phrase that's a given right i've got to at least be physically fit enough to run and bike for a long time and swim for a long time but it's the nutrition plan that makes a big difference on whether someone you know finishes in 10 hours or 13 hours or for some people whether they finish at all but that nutrition is going to be the difference between someone that that wins or gets 12th place and I found that people, our own lives are that way. You know, financial goals can be that way where some people say, well, yeah, I mean, what, can't I just, can I just will myself through it? Yeah. You know, maybe. Yeah, probably even probably, probably you can get to base camp with no real plan. Are you going to hate your life once you're there? Maybe. Can I retire without really, you know, making up a plan? I just kind of figure it out. Yeah. I mean, you're a smart person. You probably figure it out, but you got no plan. I don't know that you're going to love how things are going once you get there. And I think that's a, that's, it's interesting to hear your perspective that those things are a given. Maybe you're just a naturally good planner. <laughs> I, I think I am probably more of a commitment phobic. That's what I say. Like when, when it comes to goals and especially professional and all, I'm a commitment phobic. So I don't sign up to anything. I'll rather be a slacker at home and do nothing because once I sign up, then it's all in. And, yeah. and I, yeah, maybe I'm just built that way where because if I sign up, that means, and like you say, you're right, whether it's with my money, relationship, you know, what do I want from it? Where are we going? Because when you don't work on the given, you're making it so much harder for yourself sure. and other people who, who form the team, um, you know, your core team, the larger outer team, you know, maybe there are organizers in, you know, triathlons and stuff. So um, when we're... When we're, for example, one of the mountains we're climbing, uh, one of our friend, um, she wasn't doing well. So as a team, we decided she shouldn't be on this climb. And uh, it was probably the most painful thing for her ever because she thought she might be able to. But, you know, she she just listened to the entire team and she volunteered, which, I mean, I love her. You know, we have amazing teammates, but one of the discussion we had at that time was that if somebody goes up, let's say six people are going up on a mountain and one person has any issue, that does not mean this one person is turning around or is having a hard time. That means at least three or four other people might have to physically carry this climber back down. 
So it jeopardizes like a lot more. And I think that applies for everything, whether you're in a, again, relationship, marriage, or with friends, with your money. Yeah, if you fail, your people are going to have to carry you. Well, I think yeah. I think that's important. You know, the, the point you brought up, Sanger, is that looking at, you know, planning out things so that you have fewer decisions to make. You know, if you've got a nutrition plan, like you talk, you don't have to decide what you're eating. If you also have a principle that, hey, if some somebody turns around, three other per- people are turning around with them. There are decisions that you can sort of pre-make or if you have a plan, you don't have to make decisions. I know when when we've been hiking, uh, I'll meticulously sort of map out, you know, how many miles I want to go, when I want to get there, uh, how long I think it's going to take me, those those types of things, because I want to know that that's one thing I don't have to decide. I want to get that ahead of, you know, you know, ahead of myself and not in the same thing with. Uh, when you look at financial planning, you know, let's let's decide this is what we're going to do so we don't have to decide how we're going to fund this goal. Let's have quantitative rules on investments so we don't have to decide what we're going to do if the market adjusts, uh, have a policy on how you're going to bring money in. You, know. you, you mentioned something, too, about how people will have to carry you down. If you if you, you know, break your leg, you're not just getting a helicopter off the mountain. You know, you've got a, that means your teammates are carrying you. That's in life too. Okay. So you crash and burn and you got no money. You're taking your family down with you. Yeah. Who's carrying you now? You know, some, sometimes people are hiking solo in life and they don't have anyone to carry them, but most of us do. Right. I mean, if someone that you love dearly really crashed and burned, like you might be mad at them, you might resent them, but you're going to, you probably are going to carry them. You know, and and I think a lot of people just act like that's no big deal. Like, ah, yeah, no, no, fine. Man, you're putting a big risk on these people you say you care about for them to have to carry you all the way down the mountain. Yeah. And that's not that's not good. And that ruins their hike. And now they can't summit and all these things. And now they're putting their own life at risk, you know, and that, I think that's a metaphor for a lot of the bigger decisions. Yeah, I agree. And also, I'm all for what's the word, spontaneous and, you know, just, and I, well, my husband will tell you, like, I'm the most spontaneous person he's probably met. It's hard for him sometimes. You did choose to climb Everest on a gag. With with no training, <laughs> no experience. Yeah. You're going to go from climbing no mountains to climbing Everest. Yeah, yeah but you, I did you put in my the work. Most spontaneous person I know as well. I back, I support your husband. So, I mean, the, the see, I guess my point here is that, yeah, I mean, sure, you know, sometimes you do get lucky and sometimes um, you have to enjoy life and be a little spontaneous as well. I'm not against those, but if I were to look back on things I've done, um, whenever I've been lucky, I've worked hard to create luck. So it hasn't just, you know, um, happened. Tell me more about that. Um when I've been lucky, I worked hard to create luck. Yeah, so um, I was extremely lucky that I was given a second chance to make it to the summit. I didn't on the first one, and a lot of people don't. Um, and that is usually the right thing to do, um, you know, because if your climbing climber is at risk, you should not do that. Um, but I did put on a lot of hard work from being a non-athletic, non-climber person to turning my... Um, like, 
entire being around from my mindset to my body to everything. So when I was up in that mountain at the last camp of Everest to death zone, um, I was so determined to go back up. Um, and I was lucky that my leaders listened to me and gave me a second chance, but I had worked so hard to yeah. be deserving of that chance. If both my leaders had insisted that, no, you got to go back, like, you know, then um, they wouldn't be wrong. And they had, as leaders, every right to take that call. Um, so I am lucky that somehow I caught them in a good mood or I, I was able to, you know, emotionally kind of, you know, negotiate this. So I was lucky. There is no doubt about it. But I had worked hard um, to be this lucky. And there are there are a lot of other um stories like um we haven't gotten into my stand-up comedy career yet but <laughs> coming from Nepal I went to New York I did a course for 60 weeks in stand-up and Gotham Comedy Club is one of the top 10 comedy clubs in the United States and I just talked to one of their producers and I said give me a show and it talked it took a lot of convincing. It wasn't easy. But eventually, maybe after a month or so, I got a show. Like, you know, with my face on the poster, top shot comedy with Soidi Busnet. And after that, I was like, I am this, like, like co comedy-wise, I'm a nobody from Nepal who so, just so showed just, up in New York. So you just, you just called up this guy at the Gotham Comedy Club and said, give me a show, and he gave you a show. It took a lot of convincing. And also, see, there, I was lucky. I was given a show. But... I had been producing shows in Nepal. I had been writing my content and, you know, organizing shows. And I had worked a lot. And so the same people who were doing comedy with me, like in open mics and all, like from New York, they were like, oh, my God, how did you get a show? Like, how did you get so lucky? You know, and uh, it was it's unheard of. Um, um, it, yeah, it's it's a it's a rare opportunity. But I had everything in my kitty. So is, is that coming up or have, did you already Oh, that's, this was in 2017. Okay, so you and did then, it. Yeah, and then the show went How'd well. It, <laughs> it was a hit and they asked me to come back again. I did another show in 2019. Uh, 2020, we had a show planned, but that didn't happen. So, And now they're like, yeah, come back. Like whenever you're in New York, we'd love to do a show with you. So, you know, the, the open doors. Um, but to... It, it is, there's a lot of luck involved that, there, but, you know, for example, if somebody gives you this insane opportunity, I think you'd have to be in that position where you can make the most of it also. So I had done the hard work of doing, you know, everything comedy related, everything from producing to mentoring others, you know, writing, performing, all of that in Nepal for so long that gave me the confidence to go to this producer and be like, give me a show. Any, any successful person who has any self-awareness is going to, I think, admit that some of that success is a result of luck. But that's a unique concept. I hadn't heard anyone say, yeah, you know, hey, I'm lucky. I, my business is doing really well. Of course, I got lucky, but I, I created that luck through hard work. Mm -hmm. And I... Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that, that, that it does take luck to be successful. It takes luck to climb Everest, takes luck to do anything that's worthwhile. But that luck's not just going to, 
going to come knock on your door either. No. <laughs> Luck's not going to find you on your couch. No. And think and about say, this. Let me carry you to Everest. Whether you are um, climber, investor, comic, whatever you are, there always, aren't there always people better than you, better at this job than you are, physically more well, fit than you are, more funny than no, you are? No, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So... But uh, you know, second I looked at, we both looked at each other at the same time. We're like, no, there's <laughs> not. <laughs> I love that confidence. But there are better climbers than me. The better she comics than true. me. Yeah. She just said she loved the confidence. <laughs> and misplaced as it was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I believe in creating my own luck. I believe in luck 100. Uh, percent It comes with a lot That's of hard true. work. There's always going to be someone better, always, and. Yeah, create your own luck, and that that's only going to happen through working hard and being being relentless. You mentioned at, at um, yesterday when we were talking that everything comes down to awareness, mm-hmm. and um, like comedy is awareness in one way, just being aware of things. And when we talked to Kerry Newhoff about leadership, he said leadership is all about awareness, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and. Well, even even when we talked, you know, with the concepts with Doug Lennick about being aware of what what you're thinking about. Yeah. You know, so I think it's a big part when you look at decision making. It's, it's huge. Yeah. But self being able to understand how you make decisions. You know, you were talking shyly about how all these things are a given for you. Well, you, at least you know that about yourself. Right. So you can avoid committing to projects that. You, you you don't want to put all of these other decisions into or do all of these other things and do all of these other steps because you know that when you say yes, you're not going to half-ass it. Mm-hmm. There are other people that they, they they don't know that about themselves and then they, they react the same way and then they get overwhelmed and, and they can't execute on all of the things that they're working on. Or they don't make decisions that way. They don't commit 100%. And they do know that about themselves, and it allows them to take on more projects. And they just say, well, I am going to half-ass this. <laughs> Maybe consciously that's a decision. Yeah. Awareness is, like I shared yesterday, awareness is my one-word solution to all the problems in the world, in my life, <laughs> everything. Because um, like you were saying, if you're aware of it, then you can fix it. Right. What are you going to do if you're not aware of it? Yeah, you know, that's so, it's so true. I, I, as I struggle and I work to, and I think, I think my wife would disagree, but as, as, as I try and improve and become more self-aware <laughs> is that, and, and you have to work on that to, to become more self-aware. I've become more aware who of people who aren't self-aware. Do, do you find that? Is that is that those those jump out and, and you become aware. You're like, oh, this person isn't situationally aware. This person isn't self-aware. And then you realize that you were that person. I, w- I was. Before. And you get, I oh, my gosh. I, 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 it was obvious to other people that I wasn't self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> until it becomes, yeah, until yeah. you become self-aware. Right. Yeah. You, you're, you're, the, the problem with people who who aren't self-aware is that they don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> They don't know. They don't know that they lack self awareness. So it's a it's a hard thing to figure out. You even need to work on, you know, to be to get better at. Yeah, and um, for me, it definitely started with myself. Um, 
I am I am a big advocate of meditation. I've been meditating for 20 years now. So a lot of it, like when you become aware of your breath, of sensations in your body, slowly, I think naturally you start being aware of your emotions and your own hypocrisy, your politics, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses. So it happened in an organic way for me. That was one. And another is my teammates. So we are brutally honest with each other in my team. If somebody has put on weight, we'll be called fat. So <laughs> that's a fact in my team, you know, and we don't we don't mean it in, in a hurtful way, but we don't sugarcoat the truth either. Right. So um, and again, like I was sharing, I am, I have always been, I don't know, I want to say fit, you know, always within the right BMI and everything. And there was a time when I put on a little weight and my, a friend of mine was like, your neck is thick, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> we are given these cues to be very aware. Um, there were particularly few things, um, that my team helped me a lot with. So, um, they were one of the biggest um, changes in my life. They were. They told me that I was very gullible. And you're leading a team and your team members are telling you you're very gullible. It's. And did you just go, oh, I am? <laughs> <laughs> did you believe I, that? No, uh, no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of that story. <laughs> I have to hear When I story. told you that gullible wasn't even in the dictionary. Oh, that was the worst. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, he told me gullible's not in the dictionary. And I was like, oh, interesting fact. I must have done something gullible for him to make that comment. And I was so unaware that I didn't even recognize that that was related to this, you know, gullible moment that I had had. A few days later, um, I'm in my fifth grade science class. One of my friends, Clay, he goes, and I guess I was being gullible again. He goes, hey, gullible's written on the ceiling. And I said, fun fact, it's not even in the dictionary. <laughs> and he goes, it's obviously in the dictionary. And I went, no, man, it's not. Bet you didn't know that. And he goes, <laughs> and now, so bad here's about the this. Jo- but here's the joke for, for him is he actually went and picked out the dictionary. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and he goes, let me show you. And... I think we both lost in that moment because obviously it's in the dictionary. You could have played that differently. In, in I didn't know what, I don't think I knew what the word meant. <laughs> I don't think I was aware at that point. When, when you read the definition, did it hit you? That, it what hit me happened? then. I go, oh. <laughs> I was very upset and embarrassed. But yeah, if I was smart, I would have said, loser, you have to go get the dictionary. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't pick the dictionary. I would have gone for like anything to prove my you know friends yeah. dead wrong no that, it wasn't a it, it was not my not my best moment <laughs> <laughs> but I worked on it I, I it wasn't pleasant to hear but they told me and I kind of took my time to sit through that and I could see um, the impact of being gullible how it impacted me and my team and other things around me. And I was like, yep, they're right. And the awareness came from uh, the feedback of my teammates, but it's hard to, you can't excel as a team without that awareness. Like, you know, to be the best person, best version of ourselves, we have to be self-aware, but to be the best version of a team, you have to be aware as a team. And I'm not always going to be aware of everything, Mm -hmm. you know, no matter how I try to, how 
self-aware I try to become. I can't be as aware of myself as other people are in certain characteristics. I mean, I've, I've been on teams in business before where we actively, or not we, other people actively reject accepting that awareness. Say, hey, let's give each other feedback. Let's let's talk about these things. If you're fat, let me tell you, you know, like let's let's talk about yeah, it. Some people don't want to hear that they're fat or some whatever it is. Some people don't want to hear what their problems they are at all. They do not want to hear that. So it's good to have that that kind of re- that trust relationship with your teammates or business partners where you can say, hey, you're not pulling your weight or, hey, this is not aligned with your values or, or whatever. You've got to be able to tell them that. And, you know, and if you can't, you're just operating you can't make decisions. You can't make decisions as a team if you can't tell people when they need to pick it up. Yeah. You can't. And also the thing is, obviously, you know, climbing mountains together, I have this deep degree of trust and bonding with my teammates. So if, you know, if somebody else comes to me and says, hey, your neck is thick and you're gullible, uh, <laughs> that's not going to go down well, you know. Uh, but where is that person coming from? Are they judging me or do they really are they really invested in my right. progress? And, are they doing it to help you? Yeah, are they doing it to be yeah. hurtful or just exactly. yeah, what, what's their? Yeah. And we might say it in funny ways or, you know, whatever. But uh, the intention of where it's coming from that makes all the difference. So no, not everybody probably has the right to, uh, in the name of making other people aware, like kind of, you know, put a spotlight on their uh, shortcomings. But uh, again, awareness is a practice. We'll have to find ways of um, just nurturing that one way or the other. Right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. There's a there's some coaching that I do with uh, with a guy in in business, and so we've got the kind of relationship that if I see him doing something, uh, I, I feel this obligation to tell him, you know, and I and, and we can kind of cut through all of the niceties and go, hey, you know, I saw you do this. Um, tell me about what you were thinking. What were you trying to accomplish when you did that? You know, I'll kind of question into it, and. Uh, if you had it to do again, would there be different ways you would articulate that? Or did you prepare to that? Or, you know, was it just, did it just come out? <laughs> so I find it's helpful for me to kind of extract that and, and ask a lot of questions before I lead in with the, the observation or trying to force self-awareness on people is just ask, you know, asking more questions up front has been, been helpful anyway. Yeah. And I guess the fact that you're coaching them already has some foundation of where, you know, um, comments or, you know, suggestions right. from you. He knows you. where it's coming from. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's a welcome. Um, and uh, on top of that, just um, some maybe tools or practice for us to figure out um, stuff on our own would also be nice, whether mm-hmm. it's meditation or, you know, whatever it is, your sports. So- you mentioned meditation. Is that is that a part of something that you've just uh, gone to on your own, or is that part of uh, Buddhism? Uh, is that is that part of that faith, or how did you get into that? Um, uh, my interest in meditation, I probably want to say that. I was, it's something I was born with, I think, because, you know, as a kid, I gravitated towards reading this kind of book or this. And so I was literally the first person who went for this 10 days silent meditation course. 
when I finished my high school and my parents hadn't heard of it. They'd never been to a meditation course or anything before. The minute I heard it, I was like, I, I need this. So I, I went for this 10 days course. And after that, I, I made sure I sent my mom and then later my dad as well. Um, so I, I, it, it's just something that has um, been interesting to me from a young age. Hmm. You, you're finding it helpful, I guess. Right. Yes, yeah. um, that could be another podcast where <laughs> uh, a lot of my decision making comes from um, this practice of awareness and how do I cultivate awareness? How how do I, you know, if I'm operating from jealousy, maybe if I'm operating from fear, how do I become aware of where am I operating from? So for me, meditation has kind of um, done a lot of wonders in figuring out what my, you know, insecurity and also strength at given moment is. Mm-hmm. The the thing that I, you know, and I, I, I haven't done a lot of meditation and, and certainly not gone 10 days, you know, in, in silence. And it, my concern is that if I, if I try and clear my mind, you know, and, and maybe I'm doing it wrong, I'm, I lose control, it would seem, of what, then replaces that void, right? You know, if I create a void in my mind and try and clear it, I I get concerned, and maybe this is self-fulfilling prophecy, that that it may not be the most positive things that fill that void. Oh, Does that make sense? You definitely need to meditate. <laughs> do you, do you meditate? Do. You do? do you, no, no, no. I, I, I'm agreeing that I do need to do that. Oh, I'm not agreeing that no, I do. I don't it. think that, that I, that's a... What are you afraid of? That, that you're going to have negative thoughts. That it may not go well. I don't know. I, oh I, man, you I should definitely a, do it. Then. Do you? Do you? Yeah. Well, how's it go? I. That's not an experience. Those negative thoughts are helpful. In what if way? I, if I'm having negative thoughts, right? If if all I'm afraid of is negative thoughts, every single time those negative thoughts are a form of awareness, <laughs> where I go, oh shit, I do that. Oh my God, people think of me in that way. Oh no, I should stop doing those things. Or maybe I realize, oh, you know what that whole, the, for the past three months, I've been really upset with so-and-so because they did this thing. And all that I'm doing is poisoning my own heart by being bitter about it. Oh no. And it stinks and it's awful and I hate it. But I'm never going to be aware if I don't have that awful moment where I think, oh, my gosh, I saw myself. I guess is is that different from just contemplating, right? You know, so, so what I'm saying is that if I want yeah, to be self-reflective, I want to cogitate on something, I, I want to, to begin to, to be more introspective about uh, my thoughts is is that different from what you're talking about meditating? Is that you, you see the distinction? Yes, and um, I'm very you know contemplative and all into self reflection kind of a person. And then again, meditation kind of has given me the tools to do that. So, for example, there are two things I want to share with you. So, for example, let's say I get angry. So normally, when you're angry, the anger runs the entire show. I'll say bad things, I'll take back bad decision. Anger is just, you know, affecting me physically, mentally, in all sense of ways. 
with more awareness or practice of meditation, you come to a place where when you're angry, you're aware that you're angry. So then you're just be able, you're just, you just watch yours. Like the more, you know, you're aware that you're being angry right now or guilty or anything, it starts affecting you less. It just, when you're angry and trying to tell yourself, don't get angry, don't get angry, it's so much harder. Instead, if you're just like, okay, I'm angry at this moment, it just, the intensity of anger just keeps going lower and lower. And I'm not making this up, like... My fights with my husband in the last 11 years went from full on 10 on 10 over even small things to now us, me, laughing at the same stupid things. And we laugh, we're like, oh my God, over this 10 years ago, I would have ruined your life for a whole week. And now, you know, because now it's not even making me angry anymore. So my response to same kind of situation changes just by knowing that oh this has triggered me this is making me angry so i used to get angry a lot and all of the advice i would get would be about what to do once you're angry right like oh well instead of yelling at people go take a break like well i don't want to take a break because i'm mad at you right now right we're going we're yelling at each other i'm not going to leave and i was so unaware that even if you and i were in a shouting match i wouldn't even know that i was angry I, and even if you said, well, you're being really angry right now, I come, no, I'm not. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I don't do it as much anymore, but I, I used to deny the, the feeling. I, yeah, I'm you know, not why angry. Are you being so, you know, why are you so pissed off? I'm not. I'm not angry. I'm not, well, you're acting. No, I'm not. And just deny the whole, the, yeah. the whole experience. You can't stop. You can't stop those emotions. Um, like, you can't stop sadness. You can't. Nobody ever says, how do you deal with sadness? Oh, well, just don't get sad. And what? <laughs> That's, that'd be crazy if my, they say it with anger. My experience is that all these emotions, especially the you know harder to deal with ones, once you become aware, their intensity drops. So I will probably still get angry, but the frequency is much less. The intensity of a given incident is much less. And then also I'm able to let go much more easily. And all of that is because I've been able to practice awareness. That's why I keep saying awareness is my one word solution to, you know, all problems. Now, the other aspect, and it may not make any sense at all, but when you're saying, you know, uh, the thing you mentioned in the beginning with your mind being empty and what does it get filled up with, I look at meditation to kind of simplify my, you know, idea of it. I just like saying, let's go with science for a moment. So apparently there was nothing in the universe and there was a big bang and then this whole, you know, cosmic um, dance of all the galaxies and stars and solar systems and us, therefore. So basically, you're telling me there was nothing that became everything, right? And they're also studying how the universe is going to end someday. It will, will it keep on expanding and kind of lose gravity, whatever, right? They're like, I'm not a scientist. So I, I just find it simple when I sit for meditation is like, okay, so that source before Big Bang that created everything, that had the power to go from nothing to everything. I just, when I sit and when I'm being empty, I'm like, I'm anchoring myself to that. Because to me, it's like stem cell. Because to me, it's like that can become anything, right? So to me, I'll I'll just recharge myself with that, you know, space as my recharging for joy, for bliss, for being centered. 
And so I'm not worried about when my mind is empty, you know, what goes inside of it. When my mind is empty, there's just so much lightness, uh, happiness. Um, you don't uh, need a reason to be happy anymore. You don't need money or, I don't know, some material thing or a vacation to be happy. You just sit for maybe 10 minutes and I'm like recharged. I'm, I'm, I come out lighter and I have better perspective of things. So that's, that's that like having an empty mind doesn't have to be scary. So if you're, you're contemplating on this, uh, on the emptiness and, and on the universe, as you said, is, are, is there a mantra or is there something that you're trying to begin with or trying to focus on? And you were sort of alluding to the fact that you're focusing on on sort of these you know universe issues and, and things like that. Is that what you're trying to focus on during that during okay. that time? Okay, so I learned this Buddhist uh, meditation practice called Vipassana 20 years ago. And in the last six years, I've been going to a Hindu Vedic school. Although, you know, Hindu Buddhist might sound different, but there's no contradiction at all. It has been a seamless, smoothly sailing thing for me. Uh, but there is one textbook um, called, I think, Vigyan Vairab Tantra in Hindu, um, you know, domain, where they've shared more than 100 ways of meditation. And all the other, you know, cultures have their own different ways of, you know, how you can meditate. So there is, I think, w- your question is, how do you, like, what do you do when you're sitting down to meditate? Right. So there are so right. many different things. And because right, I know nothing. About yeah. It. To each their own. And um, I just tell people that whatever you can make time for, like, go for it. If it's an app, go for it. If you find a teacher, go for it. If you can sign up for a course, like at a proper meditation school run by, you know, people meditating or teaching meditation for, you know, 20, 30 years, go for it. So just, um, yeah, like what a uh, you want to make sure it's a legit thing and you're not going to get like, you know, you don't be gullible about it. <laughs> uh, make sure it's a legit thing. But um, all of these things work. And I, I've seen people switch uh, from one to another because they think, you know, something else worked better for them in that point of time in their life or whatever. So you will have to do some, I think, research and I can help you with that. And interestingly, this is um, kind of shameless plug, but not really, because um, from the time pandemic started, I've also been um, doing this. uh, I'm also a trainer. So I've been doing sessions, meditation sessions um, with friends, strangers. I don't do it for money. It's for free. And whoever is interested, I'm like, let's go. Let's give it seven days, uh, 30 minutes to one hour every day. And then they can decide what they want to do and whatever. So from CEOs to students to uh, all of that. So that offer is open to you if you want to take oh, it or I'll any follow, of your I'll listeners. Up on that. <laughs> you're any of your listeners, anybody. And the reason uh, for this is I, I don't have any business plan for this. There's there's no money or any of those strengths here. It's just that this practice has given me so much in my life. I really feel like I owe it to kind of give it back a little bit if I can. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to sign you up for that. I, apparently I need it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you had a, uh, you were doing that freeze, freeze game. Uh, we learned from, uh, Doug Lennon. Are you still doing that? Yeah. It's not, it's not. That's, I, I know it's not the same. The same it, as meditation. I know it's not the same. But, but um, 
I think it's important. Basically, what it is, you stop at random times throughout the day and ask yourself basically four questions. How am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I doing? And then what are my values? So right now I'm thinking, you know, I'm happy to be here. I'm excited, but I've also got a list of things that I need to do later today that I, you know, keep just rattling around and I'm sitting here talking to you guys. Um, I'm feeling a little bit anxious, but mostly calm. Right. And then I think, okay, well, my values are, um, leadership challenges, excitement, excellence. What, what am I doing right now is what I'm doing, thinking and feeling, are they all aligned with those things? Well, well, that anxiety is not helpful. Right. And go, okay, well, me thinking about what I have to do later is not helpful because I'm not engaging in this conversation. That just an example, right? So I find it helpful to go, okay, because sometimes I am. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. Most of the time I'm not because none of us are, you know? Are you doing exactly what you should be doing all day, every day? Are you thinking what you should be thinking all day, every day? Are you feeling helpful emotions aligned with your values all day, every day? No. Even if even if you're highly successful, you might go, most of what I do is aligned to my values. But most people are not also thinking and feeling in alignment with their values. And almost no negative emotion can be aligned with your values, right? I'm angry. Well, how is that helpful? <laughs> oh, well, I guess it's not. Okay, well, I can throw that away, right? Or I can at least make sure that if I'm feeling something that's not aligned with my values, that what I'm doing still is. So I'm angry and I'm yelling at my husband. Hmm. (laughs) Well, that's probably not aligned with my values. I can't stop being angry, but I could stop yelling. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I found that really helpful. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm no meditation expert at all, but I'll try short periods and it might be like after a prayer time as well. Um, I think some prayers done in the right way can be like kind of a meditation too. Um, you know, the, like the rosary, for example, is very meditative in how, and, and I, know, I don't know the name of the, the Buddhist prayer that uses beads and is very similar. Mm-hmm. And you, you would probably know the name. But prayers like that can be very meditative to say, okay, well, I'm kind of getting in this like mantra that you alluded to earlier. The silent meditation, I'm, you know, I don't do it every single day, but I find a lot. I find it helpful to just go for ten minutes. I don't have to think about anything because most of the time we are thinking. You know, especially in the modern world, we're we're thinking about we're thinking about a hundred things at once. Or I've got my phone and my laptop all binging and buzzing and pinging, and then I've got to go from this to that to this meeting to that meeting. Could I drive? And now I've got all sorts of you know, external stimuli while I'm driving my car and then I'm walking and I'm just going and going and moving and moving and doing and thinking, okay, can I for 10 minutes not do anything? Can I not think anything? Can I not feel anything? And then maybe when I come out of that, I'll be able to have a little bit more awareness and control for what I think and feel. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Yeah, it's um, it's very liberating and it recharges you. So there's nothing to be <laughs> <laughs> scared of. And uh, in fact, the school I go to, Jivan Began, one of the gurus, he runs a very big successful um, college, like offering MBA, MBBA courses in Nepal. So I find it perfect because it's like, yeah, I am not planning to go live in a cave. I could be trained from somebody who has this big CEO kind of a life. And that's very helpful to me. So, yeah, I, I'm glad we're doing this conversation. Thank you for all that sharing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've, we've gone from uh, mountains to meditation. So that's been uh, taking the whole journey. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Shaili. Um, yeah, I, I got. I'm gonna go eat lunch. <laughs> That's very important, right, both uh, for meditation and mountains. So I loved all this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. How can people uh, connect with you and, and and learn more about what you do? So my website is just my name, shailibusnet.com, um, and I'm on most socials: Facebook, Insta, um, LinkedIn. So. Feel free to drop in a message and say hi. I respond usually. Uh, I'm good about and it. We'll, uh, we'll have all the details in the show notes. So that'll be, be sure. perfect. So, thanks again. So my takeaways from my discussion with Shaylee, really, I've got two. One is to put yourself in a position where you've planned ahead enough that you have fewer decisions that you want to make. So her decision make my decision making takeaway from listening to her is don't make as many decisions. Have it already planned out. Know what you're going to do. My second takeaway from her was that decisions affect the group. So know ahead of time that, hey, if we make this decision, here's what's happening to the group. If this person stays behind, uh, this person has to, has to turn around before reaching the summit three people are going with this person. So those are those are my two takeaways that try and make fewer decisions and decisions affect the group. My biggest takeaway is around awareness. She talked a lot about that uh, off the podcast, but we talked about it on the podcast as well. And yeah. self-awareness can solve so many decision-making problems because if I'm more aware of my own strengths and weaknesses, I can make decisions to amplify my strengths and minimize my weaknesses. I know where my problems are. That also applies to a group, and I had not thought of it as explicitly as that. You know, if self-awareness is important for personal development, well, then awareness for the group is important for the group's development. So it's difficult for a team to achieve its full potential if we're not willing to help each other become more aware. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Thanks for listening to this episode of Decidedly. I hope you learned something. I know I did. If you thought our show was five-star worthy, please check us out on iTunes and give us a five-star review. It really helps out a lot, helps people find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. Check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Until next time, I'm Sanger Smith with Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.